Well, I can see the numbers are thinning out late into the afternoon. Uh, don't be falling asleep on me. Someone said that preaching is the ability to talk in another man's sleep. Don't, uh, don't, don't be having me do that. Um, but I'm, I'm praying that you know, God will continue to use these messages in your life long beyond today. I want to give a shout out to Brad, his team, the guys that are part of, yeah, the guys that are part of the men's ministry. But, uh, put this all together, made it happen. The food's great, uh, just uh, smoothly run. And uh, just trust that what God wants you to learn, you'll learn. Because I'm a, a pastor uh, originally from Ireland, my congregation t- tend to send me jokes or stories about the Irish. And so I thought I'd share this one. There's a little bit of a lesson in it. It's about two Irishmen that go to Canada for hunting. They're, uh, yep, Brad will appreciate that. They go moose hunting. Uh, and, and so uh, Patty and Mick spend their time up there and they bag six moose. And they come back to this little airport so they can fly out after the hunting trip. And they get there and uh, they're trying to get on board with the two of them, the baggage and the six moose. Uh, and the pilot says, you know what, you can't do this. There's no way I'm you to me, the baggage and, and six big moose. Well, this is, you know, one prop, small light aircraft. We've got to get over the mountains. That's never going to happen. And, uh, and, and Patty says, hold on a minute. He said, you know, the, the guy last year did it, about the same size of aircraft, uh, the two of us, him, uh, our, our luggage. And last year we actually bagged six moose too. And, and he, he did it. And the guy said, really? He said, yeah. You know, uh, and they talk him into them getting on the airplane, the six moose. So they pack everything in. They, they trundle down the, the, the uh, runway. They take off. And as they're kind of climbing, they get up over the mountain. He just can't get enough power. And sure enough, man, that little aircraft, everybody on board goes into the side of the mountain. After a few minutes, um, Patty and Mick waking up. The pilot's dead. The six moose are scattered all over the place. Paddy kind of shakes himself, turns to Mick and say, have you any idea where we are? He said, you know what? Now that I think about it, I don't think we're too far from where we crashed last year. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good, man. Um, <laughs> uh, so what's, what's the point of the story? Whatever lesson you're meant to learn, learn it. Don't repeat it. And uh, we trust that that will be the case today. Take your Bibles, all jokes aside, to... Uh, Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. We looked in the first uh, time together at 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21, a message entitled, Put It to the Test. Well, today, in this session, we're going to look at good thoughts. Discernment is about good thoughts and filtering everything you decide or everything you face in life through a grid of good thoughts so that good results come from good thoughts. So uh, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. In the 2011 movie, The Iron Lady, 
The former British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, played by Meryl Streep, is asked by her doctor how she's feeling. And Mrs. Thatcher replies, what? What am I bound to be feeling? People don't think anymore. They feel. One of the great problems of our age is that we are governed by people who care more about feelings than they do about thoughts and ideas. Thoughts and ideas, that's what interests me. Ask me what I'm thinking. Mrs. Thatcher's right. And I grew up in the era of Thatcher in Britain, and you know what? She was normally right. The most important thing about a man or a woman is what they think. Why would I say that? Why would Thatcher make that point? Because, after all, thoughts and ideas are the building blocks of life. Think about it. Everything starts with a thought. Everything you see about you was first a thought. The house in which you live was first a thought in the mind of an architect. The car in which you drove to this church today was first a thought in the mind of an engineer. You yourself were first a thought in the mind of your mother and father. The creation itself, teeming with life and beauty, was first a thought in the mind of God. Listen to this statement. Everything and everyone besides God was first a thought. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 23, verse 7, For as a man thinks, so is he. You see, you and I are not what we think we are. We are what we think. What we think determines how we see ourselves, how we view life, how we perceive God. Our mind is the control and command center of life. Out of the heart, and in the Hebrew it can mean the mind and the heart together. Out of the heart or out of the mind, the issues of life flow. That's why I want to come to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Because a man's thoughts die his soul. Or as Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator said, the man is as the mind is. It's a powerful statement, guys. The man is as the mind is. Whatever your mindset is, wherever you focus your thoughts, that's going to color your view of life, your attitudes and your actions. So here Paul, realizing the importance of that, draws his thinking to a kind of summary or conclusion. If I can just put it kind of in its context, I think the theme here in the immediate context is peace. Because in um, verses 6 and 7, we're told that as we pray and yield our worries to God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will stand guard or garrison over our hearts and minds. In verses 8 and 9, he talks about focusing our minds on the right things, those things that can can produce peace. And we read in verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. As one commentator says, like us, the Philippian believers were habitual worriers. Their minds always racing from one unresolved worry or anxiety to the next. But Paul holds out the prospect of an unimaginable, unsurpassing divine peace to garrison the heart and the mind, a peace that patrols the entrance to our emotions and thoughts 
The way that that peace is enjoyed is by feeding our minds upon the right things. That's our kind of context. Paul is concluding uh, his exhortation here on not worrying and on pursuing the peace of God. And we have here a beautifully crafted sentence. It's one long sentence in the Greek, verses 8 and 9. And the Apostle Paul is putting a great deal of thought into the issue of thought because he understands the importance of thought. In fact, here's a little outline, if you want it, for the book of Philippians. Each chapter kind of focuses on a focus of the mind. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul talks about a single mind. He talks about being of one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. They're to get their act together as a body of believers and indeed work for the advancement of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. There's a single mind in chapter 1. There's a submissive mind in chapter 2, where they're told to be of, of, a, of a lowly mind, to, to think of others before themselves. And the epitome of that is Christ and the cross. And so he says, let this mind be in you that was also in the Lord Jesus who humbled himself and became submitted to the Father's will, which meant embracing a cross. Single mind, chapter one. You have a submissive mind, chapter two. You have a spiritual mind, chapter three. It talks about those who've made a God of their belly those who love earthly things, who are caught up in the material, who are not spiritually minded, but earthly minded, who haven't set their affection on things above. And so he challenges the believers to be spiritually minded, not earthly minded, to remember their citizenship is in heaven. Single mind, chapter one, submissive mind, chapter two, Spiritual mind, chapter 3. Secure mind, chapter 4. That's where we're at. The secure mind, the mind at peace with the world around it. The mind that is guarded by the very peace of God. The kind of peace that Jesus displayed in a boat in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. That kind of peace. The very peace of God will guard our hearts. We can have a secure mind. Lloyd-Jones said that faith is a refusal to panic. Love that quote. That's true. And you and I can enjoy that. And part of that is focusing on the right things. Paul puts a lot of thought, a long, intricate, grammatical sentence, puts a lot of thought into thoughts. Because thoughts are important. I like the story of... uh, the little fellow who said to his mother late in the afternoon, you know what, mommy, my tummy's sore. She said, you know why? Because it's empty. In an hour we'll be eating dinner. Once you put something in your stomach, you'll feel better. So they sit down to dinner an hour later. The pastor happens to be joining them for dinner that night. He comes in and the mother asks him, well, pastor, how are you doing? He says, I'm not doing too bad, although I think I've got a little bit of a headache. Little Johnny speaks up. He said, you know what mom would tell you, Pastor? Your, your, your head is sore because there's nothing in it. But once you get something in it, you'll feel better. And Paul wants you and I to know that once you and I get something in our heads, we'll feel better. So let's start to look at the text. Number one, 
what I call the instruction. Number two, the itemization. Number three, the implementation. The instruction, the itemization, the implementation. Look at verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, so on and so forth, meditate on these things. There's a long sentence here, as we've said. There are two appeals within this long sentence. The first appeal, meditate on these things, verse 8. The second appeal, do these things, verse 9. We've got eight virtues in this list of things we ought to think about. Six adjectives, two nouns. That's what we're to meditate on. The Greek word meditate here in verse 8 is legizomai. It means to take into account. It means to carefully consider. It means to calculate. It means to ponder in a penetrating manner. It means to give your full weight to the thing under consideration. To dwell on it. Interestingly, it's a present tense verb, which means you're to constantly be doing this. Constantly corralling your thoughts. Constantly giving weight to these things that Paul lists where you dwell on them. This isn't the same as kind of airy, fairy, freewheeling, blue sky thinking. No, this is concentrated thought. Peter would put it like this, we're to guard or gird up the loins of our mind. I remember hearing the right explanation of that the first time from this pulpit where John MacArthur reminded me along with the congregation that day that this is a wonderful picture in, in Peter's day of someone who was running. And because they wore long flowing garments, they would gather up their kind of tunic and tuck it in their belt. They would gird it. They would kind of tuck it in their belt so that they could run unhindered. That's the image that Peter has here. He's talking about stray thoughts that if you don't rein them in, can trip you up, can take you where you ought not to go, can have you focusing on the things that will displease God. So don't allow your thoughts to become maverick, to go running off in any kind of direction. You've got to tuck them into the belt of truth. You know, before I went into the ministry, I spent eight years as an aerospace engineer. I remember the early days in the apprentice school where we were taught different disciplines. Ultimately, you'd end up electrical or mechanical or whatever. Um, but you always took a turn at something. And I remember the time we were working on lathes and milling machines, and they would try to scare us, and rightly so. And they would remind us as we came to these machines that we couldn't have wear loose, loose clothing. The old men in those days still wore ties to work even below their overalls, and they were told to make sure their tie never kind of comes out. They've got to tuck it away, lest it get caught on the chuck of the lathe or in the milling machine they could get drawn in, and they would tell those horror stories of men literally made into minced meat. That's kind of the thought that Peter has there. Don't let anything hang out in your thoughts that could be damaging to your spiritual health. That's Paul's idea here, legizomai. Focus on those things that are important and helpful. Develop a Christian mind. Listen to this, guys. The Christian man must develop a Christian mind. That is a lifetime of discerning, dedicated, disciplined thinking and meditation. 
You've got to train your mind to think Christianly about politics, about life, about entertainment, about clothes and fashion, about parenting, about sex, about your work. It all comes under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the Word of God addresses all those issues and will instruct us completely, sufficiently in these things. So you've got to, across a lifetime, constantly be meditating, bringing your thoughts to bear upon the mind and thought of God revealed in the Word we call the Holy Scripture. You're to bring every thought into captivity to Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 10, 5. You're to regain the lost art of meditation. What does it mean to meditate? You know what? There's there's an old navigator's booklet on meditation that says this. Meditate is pondering various thoughts by mulling them over in the mind and heart. It's the It's processing of mental food. We might call it thought digestion. Chewing upon a thought deliberately and thoroughly, thus providing a vital link between theory and action. What metabolism is to the body of a cow, meditation is to the mental and spiritual life. I like that. It's helpful. It's a good image. Something you and I can get our heads around. What is meditation? It's thought digestion. It's chewing on Scripture. You ever think about the food analogy in the Bible? What about Jeremiah 15, 16? The prophet Jeremiah, your words were found and I ate them. Not literally, mentally. And your word was in me, the joy and rejoicing of my heart. What about Job 23, verse 12? I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my daily bread. I chomped down on the word like a breakfast burrito from Chick-fil-A. I'm giving it away, just giving you away where I'm at most mornings of the week. Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Got to chew on the word. In fact, I, I let it be known one Sunday morning that I, I enjoy those Werther's hard candy. I just made it a passing comment on the sermon, and next week, Bill Simnick, one of our deacons and ushers, came to me with a handful of Werther's, and he's been doing it every week since. There's not a Sunday goes by I don't begin my service with, without a handful of Werther's. And if I get a few minutes before things get going, I'll pop one of those in my mouth. They're so smooth and they're so creamy. And I kind of take that hard can and I roll it over my mouth and then I, over my tongue, then I suck on it. And then I roll it over my tongue and I suck on it. And then I roll over my tongue and I suck on it until the darn thing's away. That's kind of the image of meditation where you're just kind of rolling God's word over your mind and sucking on it and chewing on it and thinking about it. That's the instruction where we mentally drill down into gospel facts, truth about God, the great and exceeding promises of God, thoughts about heaven, warnings about sin. Can I just get practical, run down a little list of things that might help you kind of work that out? That involves a decision, by the way. 
a decision on your part, like Ezra, Ezra 7.10, where we read that Ezra set his heart to study the law and do it. There was an intention. You've got to leave here today with an intention, with a plan to study the Word. It involves a decision, an intention. It'll involve a place. Find a place in your home, in your workplace, in your car. My father was a working man. Left the home before many of us were up. But I knew every morning of his life, he grabbed his King James Bible. They say you can't read the King James anymore. My father left school when he was 14. And he read his King James Bible every day. And that one cushion on the settee was always depressed because that's where father sat every morning of his life and read his Bible. There was a place and a time for my father to get the word of God into his mind before he went into a dusty factory so that he could meditate on it, suck on it, chew on it every day of his life. He can quote it verbatim. And by the way, he's lived it. Decision, place, time, endeavor. You're going to have to bring every thought into captivity. You're going to have to shut things out. You're going to have to put deadlines and demands off. God needs your mind. Will you worship him with all your mind and with all your strength? And you take your strength to focus your mind on loving him. And he's exalted his word above his name, so you can't love him without loving the word he's written. A decision, a place, a time, an endeavor, an awareness. As you meditate, you need to be aware. This isn't just a cerebral process. This is a book unlike any other book. The Holy Spirit holds the key to understanding it. He's the illuminator, the discerner. He's the teacher. So you need to be aware of your need of the Holy Spirit and pray for His guidance, His illumination, His filling. There needs to be a passage where you sit down and go over the Word of God, maybe ask yourself some questions. I remember one day writing down to myself, I want God to speak to me through His Word. God just hasn't spoken. God speaks, but He speaks through what He has spoken. It's a living Word. It speaks into my life. When I read it on a certain day, and I read it systematically at a certain time, in a certain place, under the work of the Holy Spirit, God often meets me and meets you at the point of our need. And you know what? I want God to speak. So I wrote an acrostic down one day. I said, as I come to a passage, is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an example to follow? Is there an attitude to foster? Is there a key idea about God or His Son to learn? A decision, a place, a time, an endeavor, and an awareness, a passage, and a goal. Because the goal is not reached when you've finished reading the Word and understood it. The goal is then to live it. Old D.L. Moody said the Bible's not just for information, it's for transformation. Gypsy Smith, an old evangelist back in the U.K., said many, many times, it's not how many times you've been through the Bible, but how many times the Bible's been through you. So that's the instruction. You and I have got to bring our best thinking to God's infallible Word, do it on a daily basis, do it continually throughout the day, 
One of the things I used to do as a young Christian, if you're a young Christian here, I used to read a Bible, I'd get a thought, maybe it was a promise, maybe it was a sin to, to avoid, maybe it was something about Jesus. I'd write it down in a little card, I'd stick it in my jean pocket. When I got to Shorts, the aerospace company I worked in, I'd just think about it. Every so often I'd pull it out and look at it, meditate on it, put it back in. It helped me with all the nonsense that was going on around me, all the polluted air from the dirty jokes and the conversations. I wanted to do what Spurgeon said. He said in his life, there wasn't 30 minutes went by, he didn't have a conscious thought about Jesus. It's kind of what we want to be about on a daily basis, focused on the Word. I don't know if you heard about the, the lady who went to the doctor about her husband who was getting more absent-minded by, 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 by each and every day and she said, you know what, doctor, I'm concerned about him. Lately, his mind seems to be wandering a lot. The doctor looked at her and said, well, I wouldn't worry about that too much. If I know your husband, he can't go very far. Well, you're not, you and I are not to allow our minds to go very far from the call to meditate upon the Word of God. What about the itemization? We've gone from the instruction, meditate on these things. What are these things? Paul itemizes them. He gives us certain virtues that are good and will add to our godliness. He he invites us to direct the traffic of our mind. In fact, just recently, one of the deacons in our church invited me to join him at the LAX control tower. He's an air traffic controller. In fact, he's over the air traffic controllers at LAX. I've always had a fascination with aircraft. I worked in the aerospace industry. And so it was a wonderful two or three hours. In fact, he invited me the day my daughter was coming in from a flight from London. We traced it through Arizona into California Hundreds of aircraft taking off and landing. Two runways. We're up above it all. Fascinating. No panic up there. It's just competence, professionalism. Loved it. And as I've thought about that, Paul's kind of encouraging us to be an air traffic controller in the mental airport of our minds. Because just like an airport, our minds have got thoughts that are coming in the land, inbound, outbound, And you and I have got to determine what is allowed to land, what thoughts are allowed to leave. We've got permission by Paul to to direct and select the pattern of our thinking. So, So let's go through these kind of checklists that Paul gives us, checkpoints, They're rather positive, not because Paul denies the negative. He just, I think, is assuming there's so much negativity and nastiness in the world. I'm just going to give you eight positive things to think about, not eight negative things to reject. And I don't believe there's a baptizing of Hellenistic virtues going on here. This isn't some Pauline version of positive thinking. These aren't random But they are suggestive, not exhaustive. Paul could have picked another eight positive virtues that conform to Christian character, or I would say the life of Christ. 
I mean, bear this in mind as we go through these eight virtues that every one of them was displayed and modeled by the Lord Jesus. So you could kind of summarize it by meditate upon Jesus' life, behavior, character. Repeat what he did. Think about what he thought about. But let's just look at them as separate virtues. We'll work through these quickly. I know it's getting late into the day. Here's the passwords of the mind. Number one, is it true? Is it true? Here's the issue, guys. Does it comport with what is true in relation to the character of God, in relation to the person of Christ, and in relation to the teaching of Scripture? Why would I say that? Because those are all true and truth. In John 17:3, we read about the only one true God. Jesus says, I am the truth. In John 14, 6. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays that God would sanctify his people through the truth. His word is truth. So when Paul says, here's what I want you to meditate on. Whatever is true. That's the first password. Is what I'm about to think about true? And you ask another question, how do I know it's true? Does it reflect the character of God? Does it reflect the life of Christ? Does it reflect the teaching of Scripture? Because we need to cut our way through the phoniness, illusions, perversions, lies, and false worldviews that bedevil this world. The world is always trying to squeeze us into its mold, to put the pressure on us, to think like they think, to laugh at what they find amusing. But we fight that. We reject the lie that truth is relative. We reject the lie that meaning is elusive. We reject the lie that gender is fluid, that creation is transcendent, that life is it that God is dead, that Jesus is a mere man. None of that comports with the revelation of God in the story of Jesus as told by him. Here's number two. Not only is it true, is it noble? It's a great question, another password. Think upon the things which are true. Think upon the things which are noble. That kind of carries the idea of worthy that which is respectful, that which is reverent. He's saying it in many words, guys, think about things that are serious. Be a serious thinker. Focus on weighty things, not tawdry, not shameful, not things that reduce life to something silly or absurd which is what most sitcoms are on American television. You want to reduce life down to the silly and the absurd. But this is a call to propriety, refinement, dignity. In fact, this word is used in Titus 2, verse 2, of an older man who is reverent and dignified. Life has kind of sobered him up. It's not that he's a stick in the mud and can't have fun. It's just he knows that life is weary. Time is fleeting. Heaven is beckoning. Hell is filling. Eternity is just around the corner. With that kind of stuff, there's only so much laughing you're going to do. 
you're going to think about noble things, the, the greatness of God, the beauty of Christ, the solemnity of death, the glories of heaven, the sacredness of life, the enchantment of life itself. What a gift. What a gift. I was reading just a while ago about a biographer of a 18th century English author by the name of Horace Walpole. And he said something about this man that I think none of us would want to be said of us. So he kind of sad epitaph. Here's what he said of Horace Walpole. All his tastes were minor. It's a horrible epitaph. All your tastes are minor? That's not noble. That's not dignified. Number three, is it just? Is it just? Think upon things which are just or right. We're talking here, guys, about God's character, God's standards. This word was used earlier to speak of right action and proper behavior in relation to the Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. And I think that's what's in view here. Here's what I would suggest. It's doing your duty. Either towards God, towards others, or towards yourself. The opposite would be evading responsibility. The opposite would be expediency. Now we're talking about do what's lawfully expected. Do what's right. That's what you ought to think about. Not how you feel. Not what's best for you. Not, not what's the path of least resistance. It's what's right. What's just. What's expected of you. That's what we have in mind here. Remember how Joseph acted when he heard about Mary's pregnancy? Kind of left scratching his head. They hadn't come together and she's pregnant. He knows I won't, I won't, I won't, I wasn't the father. Now he doesn't charge her outright because he's kind of in a muddle. I, I, I can't believe this of Mary. And she's kind of trying to tell him a story about a miracle. He's kind of going, ah, that's a new one. And in the middle of that, God comes and says, hey, Joseph, the, the, the child in her has been born of the Holy Spirit. It is a miracle. Mary's the girl you thought she was. But here's the point I want you to get, guys. Just before that happens, when he's confused, what do you read in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 19? Matthew, or sorry, Joseph being a what? A just man. Did the right thing. And out of love for this girl, but in the middle of his confusion, he decides to put her away. He's thinking about divorcing her. That can happen in a Jewish marriage in terms of the phases towards the final uh, step there. And it says because he didn't want to open her up to public disgrace. We don't often think about Joseph, but he's he's a good man, model for man. He was a just man, did what was right. Was an old Bob Jones senior, Help find Bob Jones University in South Carolina. He used to famously say, do right, though the stars fall from the sky. Do right, though the stars fall from the sky. Number four, is it pure? 
Now, now originally, this word carried the idea of ceremonial purity. It was a cultic term. It fell into the arena of worship, the true worship of God, or even the false worship of, of false deities. It spoke of holy places and spaces and objects and people and, and investments. And then it expanded into kind of inward purity, kind of came to be used for morality and purity. But it was especially used, and I think this is Paul's use here, of sexual purity. And certainly that would have had an immediate application to the citizens of heaven living in the Roman Empire, which was awash with filth and moral decay. In fact, Polycarp says to the Philippians, Paul challenges the young men to be blameless in all things, caring for purity, curbing themselves from evil, and the virgins to walk with a blameless and clean conscience. That was one of the early church fathers kind of take on what Paul was trying to do with the letter to the Philippians. Guys, it, 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 it has a, a word to us, doesn't it? You and I live in a world awash with sexuality. Sex is on the television, in the movies, in our music, side of buses, in our books. You can't avoid it at a halftime football show. It pops up everywhere. Every beer commercial drips with it. Every high-rise building has a billboard spewing it. It's an X-rated society. In our day, 35% of all internet downloads, that's more than one in three are porn-related. And none of us can escape that temptation. We've got to fight it. We've got to flee it. One of the things we've got to do is constantly focus our minds upon that which is pure. Fidelity to our wives, keeping ourselves as virgins for those whom God has yet to bring into our lives. We need to make a covenant with our eyes. Dr. MacArthur quoted that earlier, Job 31 verse 1. We've got to stop sexual graffiti being daubed on the walls of our minds by what we look at and what we see. We're not to look upon worthless things. Psalm 119.37. I like the story of the mother who was um, preparing a green salad for her family and the daughter comes into the kitchen while she's kind of cutting off the the, the ends that they're not going to eat and throwing them into the, 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 the kitchen sink and the daughter lets her know, you know what, mommy, can I have permission tonight to go to the movies with my friends? And the mother asks, well, what, what's the movie and what's it rated? And she tells her it's, it's an X-rated movie. It's an R-rated movie. And the mother's, no. The daughter's, but hold on a minute, mom. My friends are going, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be careful, mom. And as she's trying to make an argument for this, the mother starts taking what she'd thrown into the kitchen sink for the disposal and putting it back into the salad bowl. And the daughter says, hold on a minute, mom. What are you doing? That's disgusting. You're putting the garbage into the salad. To which the mother replied, I figured that if you didn't mind putting garbage in your mind, you wouldn't mind me putting it in your salad. And that's Paul's point. 
No garbage. Don't let the walls of your mind be dubbed with sexual graffiti. Keep it clean, pure. Number five, is it lovely? Is it lovely? Is it nice? If that's too sissy of a word for you, is it attractive? Is it pleasing? Is it winsome? Guys, it's interesting. This word lovely in the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, this was used of the, the fierce and beauty of Queen Esther. In Esther 5, verse 1. I mean, this woman was stunning to look at. Delightful to the eye. Pleasing to the heart. That's our word. Again, we, we, we live in a world that extenu- extenuates the ugly. Reduce life to the absurd. We're awash with sexual impurity. It's hardly an environment for loveliness. But the Christian has been called to focus on that which is lovely. The beauties of nature. The delight of human love. We're to embrace the lovely in, in life, in arts, in creation. Spiritually, we're, we're, to, we're to love the beauty of God himself who dwells in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 27 verse 4, David says, I'm going to dwell in your temple and behold your beauty. That's where the mind ought to go. Get away from the trashy and the tawdry and the temporary. Focus on the eternal, the pure, the elevated, that which is morally beautiful, physically attractive. We're to eschew the base and the ugly. Number six, is it of good report? Is it of good report? Meditate upon things which are of a good report. It's nowhere else found in the New Testament. But here's what we believe it speaks to. It speaks to that which is commendable in your speech. A good report. Like the two spies that brought the good report, not the ten that brought the bad report. Their report was commendable. They'd focused on the glory of God and His ability to indeed squash the enemies of Israel. Bottom line, guys, time slipping away. Think before you speak. Think before you speak. You know what? I believe it's in England. There's a, a headstone about a lady by the name of Arabella Young. She was born in 1742, died in 1771, aged 29. The headstone reads, Here lies a silent clay, Miss Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May first began to hold her tongue. <laughs> you don't want that as your headstone or your epitaph. You got to think before you speak. You know the acrostic, think. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it insightful? Is it needed right now? And is it kind? And if what you're about to say comes close to any of that, you can say it. But if not, shut it. 
because it's not of a good report. And it's not lovely. It's not helpful. Is it virtuous? Not to spend a lot of time in this, really speaks of excellence or the best. Speaks of that which is meritorious, that which is consummate. It speaks of high standards. It speaks of that which is elevated and lofty. Kind of crosses over with some stuff we've touched on, but speaks of excellence. The best. The mind's a, 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 a wonderful thing, but it's a horrible thing to waste. To waste it on that which is not excellent, not pure, not lovely, not truthful. No, we need to elevate our thinking. Excellence is not being the best, it's being your best. What are you doing with your mind? Is, is what you're doing with it an excellent thing? Finally, is it praiseworthy? Is it praiseworthy? This goes along with the previous word. That's why I didn't spend a lot of time there. Vertically, it speaks of praising God. Horizontally, it speaks of people who are worthy of our praise or our approval or our commendation. In fact, in chapter 2 of this very letter, Paul will commend and approve and praise Timothy. Chapter 2.22 and Epaphroditus, chapter 2.29 to 30. You guys need to know, he says, that no one cares for you like Timothy. You need to praise him for it, appreciate him for it, thank him for it. Epaphroditus, he, he came near to death as a gallant soldier. You need to pin a model on him. He's an excellent man. He's praiseworthy. That's our word. It, it's that which is commendable. Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission, punched holes in the darkness all across that great nation. Legacy still carries on to this day. One of his biographers said of him, I love this phrase, his was a life worth looking into. Praiseworthy. His was a life worth looking into. Will Will yours be? Will mine be? If someone could turn us inside out, like a pullover, and all of a sudden our thought life and our motives become visible for all the world to see, would you hear an anthem of praise or a chorus of criticism? Is your mental life praiseworthy? That's Paul's point. And so he wants you as a good um, air traffic controller in the mental airport to decide what's coming in and what's going out. You get to decide that. You get to decide what thought lands and what thought leaves. So let's finish up this morning, a couple of minutes or this afternoon. The implementation. This is a very short, but it's kind of uh, it's got it's it's the punch here in the passage. We've looked at the instruction. We've looked at the itemization uh, as we think about good thoughts. Now you've got the implementation. Remember what I said? There are two things that Paul calls for here. Verse 8, meditate on these things. And in verse 9, these things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, look guys, do. 
These things do. Practice them. Here's the things you ought to ponder, and when you've pondered, practice. Practice these things having pondered these things. We are not just to think about thinking about these things. We're to actually think about doing these things and then actually doing them. That's James 1, isn't it? 22 to 25. You hear the word? That's great. You think about the word? That's better. But are you doing it? Are you doing it? An ounce of Action is better than a pound of intention. Are you actually doing it? Better take one of these thoughts and do it than to think about the eight virtues and not do anything about it. I wonder if God hasn't to say to us that we often have to say to our own children, have you done that yet? Have you done that yet? Have you cultivated the mind of Christ? Have you washed yourself in the water of the word? Have you taken time to think? Have you elevated your reading? Have you better regulated your media intake? Are you studying great and noble lives? Have you found friends that will lift your thinking to another level? Someone has said that noble thoughts are of little value unless they are translated into deeds. Living surpasses learning, and practice outshines priority. It's true. Roy Zook of Dallas Theological Seminary tells the story of a man by the name of Lee Kai San. He was an inhabitant of Hong Kong, and he kind of flipped out because at his brother's wedding, he wasn't allowed to have a taste of the wedding cake before the wedding. He, he flipped out this to such a degree that he went to the top of the building and he took a leap from the 12th story. It's a true story. On the way down, he hits a flagpole and decides to grab and hold on. He's then rescued by the fire service. And after he's rescued, here's what he says to the fire service. After I jumped, I realized I'd never taste cake again. <laughs> Good idea. Here's what he said. After I jumped, I realized I'd never taste cake again, so I changed my mind. I don't know if he changed his mind at the 11th floor, the 10th floor, the 9th floor, but somewhere he grabs on the flagpole, he changes his mind and does something about it. Dead right, you'll never taste Wedding cake again splattered on the sidewalk. Just wait on. You'll get a slice in the afternoon. I know it's kind of a crazy story, but makes the point. I changed my mind. And I held onto that flagpole for all that it was worth. I acted on the change of mind. That thought controlled me, and I did something different than I was intending to do. Meditate upon these things and do them. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this beautiful, challenging, convicting, instructive passage in Philippians 4. We thank you for the minds that you've given us. 
minds that you ask that we dedicate to loving you and loving our neighbor. Minds that reflect that we have been made in the image of a rational God. God whose ways and thoughts are beyond ours. Lord, we pray that we would reflect your glory, that we would take on your image. We thank you that's the intention of salvation, to renew the mind. Paul says we have the mind of Christ, and we're to put off the old man and put on the new man. We, we realize that's what we're to do each and every day, and the world makes it hard. And then we make it hard for ourselves because of our laziness and our worldliness and our lack of discipline. So we thank you for the chastisement. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the grace that's available. As Augustine said, Lord, ask what you will, but give what you ask. Give us the grace to change our minds, to act, to act immediately, urgently, because our lives depend on it. Lord, indeed, we pray that um, each and every day we would chew on the spiritual food of your word. We pray that each and every day we would set our affections on things above, that each and every day we would control the thought traffic of our minds and lives, that we would watch our media intake that we would watch what we listen to and who we read, that we would indeed pursue that which is true and lovely and pure and excellent, because we know that someday you will turn us inside out like a pullover at the judgment seat of Christ. And we trust that that day you'll find us praiseworthy because you're going to judge the things we have done in our bodies, our actions, our attitudes. We pray they'll reflect Christ, reflect being made in the image of our wonderful God. Lord, we mourn the tawdry and the emptiness of our culture. We pray that in some fashion, in some way, that the church would elevate the thinking of the day in which we find ourselves and bring our best thoughts and our best words to communicating the gospel. For we pray and ask it, praying for these men, their homes, their marriages, their places of influence. Pray that today would be a blessing to them, but may they not just be hearers, but doers. For we ask and pray it in Christ's name. Amen.